Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Timothy Shafford, author of six novels, most recently, The Perfume Thief. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Timothy Shafford grew up on a farm in Nebraska and now lives in Omaha. He is the author of the just-released novel, The Perfume Thief, as well as five previous critically acclaimed novels, which have been among Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writer selections, Indie Next Picks, and New York Times Editor's Choices. Shafford teaches creative writing and literature at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln. Timothy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stuart. So before we talk about The Perfume Thief, I, I just wanted to ask you about the, the craft of writing. In The Perfume Thief, you reference innate talent or a tingling in the bones. And I wanted to ask you if writing is a talent you're born with or can be conjured up. And I'm actually just going to read that little note that caught my attention. Uh, so this, this is Clementine, the main character in the book. And she says, when you have a special talent, you like to think it's God-given, some bit of magic that can't be taught. You have an ear for it, a tingling in your bones. I've certainly boasted of my instincts to blue over the years. You can learn the tricks of a card sharp, but a con game calls for a bedevilment you need to be born into. What about the craft of writing? Is that something that is an innate talent or something you can sort of lure out of people? I think everybody's born with uh, personality traits and characteristics and sensibilities. And some are some lean in one direction more than another. In that particular passage you read, you know, she's really contemplating the, her knack for taking things and, and sneaking around and, and being deceptive. And so I think in the novel, she does hone those skills to a certain degree, but she's also, she has a natural instinct for it. And so I think those instincts as we identify them, as we get to know ourselves better as we're growing up, um, we put those to use in various ways, whether it's uh, to play chess or to paint paintings or to um, finagle chemical warfare, or we, we need all these, like it's, it's unimaginable, it's inconceivable to me, the idea of being like a, a, a heart surgery or, or um, before the show, we were talking about my husband's heart surgery and his heart surgeon is a, is a woman um, who, who came to Omaha to work at UNMC and now she works at Methodist and she in, uh, online speaks about how she wanted to be a heart surgeon from the time she was like in the seventh grade or seven years old or something at a very young age. And so to a certain extent, she must have been born to that or she must have had instincts in that direction and then ultimately became this, this brilliant surgeon. And so, so yeah, I think people are born inclined towards writing, but I think if they're not, if they're readers, if they learn, if they're capable of kind of developing an ear for language and an eye for, for visual elements and, and you know, that I, I, it's, it's possible. And it's also possible to write a book without great talent. <laughs> it's, I mean, the, the, that's the curious thing about the reading public. So many different people read for so many different reasons. Some people just read for the plot. They just read for entertainment. Um, I don't, I read because I want to be swept away into the, uh, into the imagination of the author and, the, and to the, the skills and talent of the author. And the, the, I, I want to be swept away by the language and the visuals and the sensory details and all of that. But some readers don't have patience for that at all. And, and, and as, as we know, you go into a bookstore and the books run the gamut. I mean, there's a huge spectrum of books that serve a variety of different purposes. So, so yeah, so I think um, you, you might not have any inclinations towards writing at all, but, um, but you, you do learn how to write. I mean, you're not born with a pen in your hand. You're not born with language skills. So people do have to teach you that. Um, and then the question then becomes, how can I convey what's inside my head? How can I actually communicate and express myself? And I think that's, that, that's kind of perhaps the area that we're talking about. When was that epiphany for you that perhaps 
you know, writing was this innate talent that you you were equipped with at birth. I grew up at a farm and um, in kind of great solitude. I had older brothers, but they were much older. And so, and I didn't have any real talent for farming. I mean, I was, <laughs> I, I was kind of, I had, I liked, you know, playing with dolls and drawing pictures and um, I would wander around. I would literally just wander around the farm and indulge my imagination. And I loved movies. I loved, I was a complete TV junkie. And so, um, and I, I had paper dolls that I would have, and they, they would enact little dramas in front of me. And so I, so I think at a very young age, I realized that uh, making things up was part of my psychology. Now, I, uh, I was talking about my husband's heart surgery, surgery. Just prior to that, I, was, I myself was having all kinds of neurological exams because I'd had, um, it turns out I'd had some uh, little mini strokes. And, and, but I also discovered through an MRI that there were some dark spots in my brain, which in further conversation with my neurologist could be uh, a result of a concussion that I had as a child. So I, um, when I was like 18 months or so, or when I was first walking, I walked off the edge of a set of bleachers and fell seven feet onto cement. And so uh, I, to a certain degree, and even within my family, there was a kind of lore that that had like had some sort of effect um, on my brain and personality and sensibility since I was so unusual. But um, and and the doctors say, you know, and it's like the psychiatrist that you read about, Oliver Sacks talks about this, like those those traumas to the brain that we have in childhood can have, uh, you know, just kind of rise from the mist. Um, years later, and and have serious consequences. So, so I think I, I think that there that there might have been some kind that 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 some of my imagination, some of uh, what might be talent or might just simply be uh, dysfunction, is actually the result of you know a, a, some level of of trauma or damage or uh, you know whatever whatever occurs in our our bodies, you know can definitely influence uh, how we think and how we perceive the world and how we communicate. I was lucky enough to be in your backyard years ago when you were projecting movies onto sort of a white sheet. And one of those films was a 1932 film, Freaks, and I'd never heard of it. It's an odd film in and of itself, and and the title sort of gives away some of this cabaret-like oddities, uh, carnival oddities. But the making of the film itself had its own kind of nasty backstory of bigotry and so on and so forth. And editorial cuts to you know get rid of some of the freakiest of the freaks, as it were. And so I, I'm building up to this just to just to paint this scene that perhaps there's this sense of attraction you have to dysfunction or non-conforming those people that are refusing um, or being oppressed within a society that 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 wants to see something else. And I feel like that really starts to get, it's certainly visible in Swan Gondola. It really feels like it's a central part of The Perfume Thief. But let me ask you to talk about that a little bit. So far as that is true, you know, how, how appealing are the oddities, as it were, the nonconformists of society in your writing? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm drawn to the margins and to the edges and to the underground and um and and yeah, the the, the freaks, the the people at some remove from society, and uh, I don't know what I'm doing with that exactly. I mean, I think, and it's not, it's I don't decide at the beginning, you know, oh, I'm I'm going to write about these 
these people on the fringes or people at the edge. I mean, it's just, um, that's, I think to a certain degree, we all feel like we're that, you know? I mean, I, I don't know that I've ever really met anybody that said, ever said, oh yeah, I, I just, uh, I'm a natural at everything I do. <laughs> Boy, he, being human is certainly uh, <laughs> um, something that I'm an expert at. <laughs> I mean, I think we all carry, um, carry this, this stuff around with us and these insecurities that we try to address in various ways. I mean, I was talking in, a, in uh, at a reading the other day, when, you, when you've published some novels, people will ask you what your favorite one is of your own. And I'll say, you know, what, what is your favorite novel? And often, and almost always, it's followed with, or is it like your children? You don't have, you know, you can't pick a favorite book in the way that you can't pick a, a favorite child, which I always think is interesting because, of course, everybody has favorite children. I mean, every parent has a favorite or a least favorite. And as children, our own consciousness, our own sense of who that favorite is, uh, even if we're an only child, I mean, I think that that informs who we are for the rest of our lives. I mean, that's the very foundation of our psychology, and it ends up affecting the decisions that we make later on and affects relationships later on. I mean, I think as adults, any kind of flaws in our characters or even or strengths, our strengths and our weaknesses all somewhat hinge on whether we were the favorite or we weren't the favorite or what we thought we deserved or what we didn't get what we deserved. I mean, um, I feel like I, in my best moments, I'm at at ease <laughs> with, with everything in life and that I feel that I, I, I recognize the beauty of experience and existence and I, I feel enriched um, by just being alive and being able to you know, experience things the way that I am able to experience and to recognize all my privileges and advantages. And, um, and then I, and in my worst, you know, I'm dwelling on old kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Old, old, old bits of spite or, or whatever, you know, like those, those dark moments that we all have when we're like, well, why did that happen? And why didn't this happen? And as if, as if like, I mean, and I think uh, in The Perfume Thief, I think one of the characters makes some reference to that. It seems sometimes that that life is all lived at once, as if we can just kind of think about it and step in the back in the past and fix it. And I think a lot of times when we're tossing things around in our head and telling ourselves our stories over and over again, as we're evaluating and analyzing, figuring out, well, why did that happen? And why did I do that? Or why did they do that? I mean, it's it's we're trying to to revise it in a sense. I mean, we're trying to get our brains wrapped around it so that we can come to conclusions that we can live with. And I think it's when we can't come to those conclusions that probably that's where madness seeps in. Well, you know what they say. There are no kingdoms without rulers. Are you ready for change?
you've created this whole world that I think gives voice and life to a, a group of people that might be as you as you describe feeling on the fringe so specifically for example in swan gondola and very much so with clementine in the perfume thief there's a real focus on lgbtq perspectives in that realm while it, of course it's not your job to speak for everybody that might identify that way i'm wondering if you do feel as if in some way you are giving a much richer tapestry of, of perspective on the lives of people that might choose to identify as different in some way than society expects. Yeah. I mean, I, at, at the university I teach, uh, we, we offer a course called the Introduction to LGBTQ Literature. And, and then we have a, an upper level one called uh, LGBTQ Literature and Film. And I've been teaching those courses for the last 15 years. And I always approach the syllabus anew every semester that I teach it. And so I'm always thinking, looking for new work and thinking about new conversations. And um, and even just in this, those 15 years that I've been teaching the course, the world and the culture has shifted, has changed. I mean, uh, not the least of which is that uh, you know the, the approval, finally, of same-sex marriage instead of the opposite, which had been happening for years of like legislation against it, trying to ban it, essentially. And so when you reach back into the past, uh, some scholars and historians, especially when you're talking about people that have been the source of study and scholarship for years, so writers who um, perhaps were gay, but, uh, but didn't write about it or didn't speak about it or weren't open about it. And so the resistance that some scholars will have to even having those conversations, even if there is evidence, even when it is quite apparent, even when the, the writer did at some point in some letter or some conversation say, yes, I'm, I'm gay and, and these are my feelings and this is, and let alone how it's expressed in the work, there still can be resistance to that because they didn't say it. They didn't use the the language of identity that we use today. And so therefore we cannot apply it to them. And the more you, you study that, the more you see it in so many different dimensions. Like there's, uh, for example, like libraries and they're cataloging, there's, there's efforts to position certain works under certain categories, but librarians might say, well, but they never identified in that way. So we can't apply those terms to those writers, even somebody like Oscar Wilde, you know, it's gay, you know, somebody for whom his sexuality is of no question whatsoever. There's still like, there's still hesitance about how exactly we feel like we can talk about them. But at the same time, it's just like the binary and the traditional and the con conventional uh, marriages that have been legal and all of that, those conversations are just assumed. I mean, it's just like heterosexuality is, is the presumption. And then we have to have evidence for the homosexuality, uh, even though th th there weren't avenues of those, that kind of expression. So yeah, so I think that when you're exploring historical fiction and you're exploring these lives and you're looking to the past, you're looking through articles and you discover if you, if you're, if you have, if you're looking specifically in a way and you know the conversations and the, the evasions, the history of evasion and the history of illusion and deception, um, you can find those stories. You can intuit them and recognize them and pinpoint them and say, ah, they're talking about somebody who's gay. I mean, I, I just wrote an article for Crime Reads, this great website on uh, an online magazine about crime fiction. And so I wrote an article about perfume thieves in history, and uh, which when I started the novel, I didn't really explore that and I didn't really know. I mean, I, I decided just kind of, I needed to decide for myself what a perfume thief was and what that career would look like. But uh, in preparing this article, I did find all kinds of evidence of, of people who did actually steal perfume. And in some instances, it was just because they stole all kinds of things. In other instances, it was people who actually preferred to steal perfume as, as a career to a certain degree. And um, one of the stories I discovered was about, I can't remember which, like a kind of a small town in the, in the Midwest. And um, these two men lived together and one of them robbed the other one. 
so, so the one man was trying to help the other man get into business because he was a salesman. And so he invested in some perfume for him to sell door to door. Well, the guy just ended up taking off with all the perfume. And so in this series of articles, it was fascinating to see how the newspapers dealt with it and how they discussed this relationship. And at one point, one newspaper just finally just put best friends in quotation marks in the headlines. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, why would you use those quotation marks if you weren't trying to suggest something else? And so that's the kind of thing, the kind of um, surgery essentially that you're doing or so your investigation and detective work is, is really to, to, to find those stories that really couldn't be told, but nonetheless were being told to some degree. I feel like this is in other novels of yours too, but certainly in The Perfume Thief, that idea of shape-shifting seems to pervade many of the characters. Um, you know, Clementine was known as both woman and a man, as Clementine and Nebraska Charlie, depending upon who was framing that point of view. Clementine's lover, M, was only ever known as M, De Chabier. She took an assumed identity, which wasn't, you know, the one uh, that she had at birth. And of course, Zoe St. Angel was a completely concocted identity in the sense that she needed to hide a Jewish identity in her parentage. So throughout the book, there are people who are using aliases or um, other ways to conceal who they are, or, or even to show who they really are, but using other ways to uh, express that. So it certainly seems to be a theme in the book, this, this idea of knowing what our identity is, concealing it, having other people ascribe an identity to us. Is that something in particular that you wanted to explore, this idea of you know, what is identity and how, how do we choose to be identified? Yeah, I mean, when I started thinking about the book, I actually had a different concept for it in terms of um, how the story would be told. And so I wanted to start with Clementine's birth and end on her 100th birthday. And so... And so I had in mind a kind of re revision of Virginia Woolf's novel, Orlando, which is really a work of, of fantasy to a certain degree, because the because Orlando does shift. Sometimes she's a, a woman, sometimes she's a man. And so she lives different lives throughout a period of like 300 years or something like that in, in different social status. And, and so I wanted a kind of somewhat realistic approximation of that. And so in conceiving of the thief, I thought, well, she might need to take on different identities in order to get the job done, depending on whether it's a, a, a small theft or a long con. And so, um, so I was applying kind of that, the Virginia Woolf novel to the character of, of Clementine. And, and, and if I were to make a realistic approximation in that sense, then it would be a matter of her taking on identity as opposed to being born one way or the other. And so, and to me, that's, that spoke, I mean, Orlando is Virginia Woolf's love letter to Vita Sackville West, her great friend, her lover, and um, her infatuation. So Orlando at its heart is really a lesbian love story. And I think that that's kind of um, that quality of life, not just for a thief, but for anyone who feels like they have to live at a certain uh, level of distortion or deception, um, or I have to sneak, have to sneak, or have to identify one way and live another. I mean, all of that kind of played into my perception of of her life. All of your books are beautifully written, but there was something about the perfume thief, and maybe it's just because of the use of the senses as a central element. But it felt much more poetic in terms of the. I, I was going to say prose, but it, it felt like poetry in certain paragraphs. I'm wondering how intentional that was. And for example, M writes many, 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 many letters to Clementine 
but very often they are on like scraps of soap wrappings or candy wrappers or, or something like that, which reminded me of Emily Dickinson and, mm-hmm. and her poetry. And so I don't know if, if this was all in your mind as you're writing um, the novel, that there was much more of a poetic bent to your language. I mean, I definitely try to approach all my work that way to a certain degree in wanting to, um, when I was in graduate school, the writer Amy Hempel uh, spoke to the to students and her writing is, is quite remarkable and her short stories are, just, are, are really like poems to a certain degree. And, and she talked about that. So I was in a writing program in the early 1990s where minimalism was the emphasis. I mean, that was the conversation. There was actually no other sense of contemporary writing than, than minimalism. I mean, everything else was something, I mean, sure, we could acknowledge its existence, but we, we really just, we don't talk about it. That's not for our purposes. And so, so, and as someone who I didn't really consider myself a minimalist, I was completely baffled by this approach to writing. And so it was a great, it was very refreshing to have Amy Hempel stand in front of our class or sit in front of our class and say, the story is like the least interesting part of a story to me. She's like, for me, it's really about, um, about the language and about the visuals and about the voice. And that's always been the important thing to me too. And I think even when I've intended to like, even when I thought, oh, this is a, a great story, Sometimes in graduate school, I would hear back, oh, well, where's the story? And I feel like I still hear that from some critics and some uh, people leave reviews and such. It's like, well, I like a good story. Where's the story? And so sometimes people just have no patience for those those poetic asides and those descriptions. And um, and whereas me, you know, I'm like, oh, and the other thing Amy Apple said is that she is mortified by the idea of writing a bad sentence, like getting it down on paper. And so she constructs that sentence in her head, brings it down on paper. And I'm, I'm the same way. I mean, I pace when I write. And so a lot of times I'm writing it in my head and then rushing to the computer to like get the exact words exactly right. That's one of the things I've learned also from teaching LGBTQ literature is that, that that's kind of a queer thing too, you know, that, that the sense that the minimalism really did kind of, to my mind, arise from a traditional, a kind of traditional muscular masculine fiction and, and, and influence from editors and writers. But Virginia Woolf also kind of references this in Orlando as well, that, that distinction between the words and what the words do and what they mean and what you hear and that and that confluence of expression in terms of so I want I want the right words but I also want them to describe the right thing and so finding that marriage of of sound like the sound of the words and the picture that I'm trying to paint is really sometimes where the magic happens Virginia Woolf references uh, the word green, and this is the word green, the color that she's <laughs> trying to convey. And um, so for me, writing can be play. I mean, it's it's indulgent. I get lost in my imagination, and and what I write is what I write. But then if you want a reader, then it has to go through a system. Then it has to go, then you have to engage in conversations. So it's a very private act. It's extremely private, very internal act that becomes a public act. And that can be uh, kind of disorienting or and, and delightful in various ways. But people become, if you take it to a publisher, then you have business people invested in it as well. And so people's careers become invested in, you know, this book has to prove that I made the right choice. (laughs) And so
So the language is, is so incredibly rich, but it was really interesting that you seem to use scent as a way to talk about something perhaps that's a little more ineffable about people and the lived experience. Um, I wonder if you wouldn't mind talking about that a little bit more. What, what was it about perfume and scent and, and those particular senses that, that made you think, oh, this is the avenue that I'm going to use to pull back the veil, as it were, to what real life actually is? Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I always feel like if you're writing about history, if you have a theory, if you have a, a concept that you, that you want to draw from the historical record, that if you do enough research and if you're um, approaching in the right way, you could kind of find the answers to the questions that you're posing. So even if, if, even if you're, I mean, if it, so long as it's not so absurd, I mean, as long as there's some level of logic to it, there's possibility that waiting out there is the article or the book or the scholarship that, or the history that will speak to, that will connect with the thing that you, the story that you're trying to tell. And so I started just really with this career, the perfume people, what, and the questions that arose from that. It's like, what would that look like and what would they steal and and how would you make a how would, would it would that even make sense of any kind or is it completely fantastical and so i went searching for answers to that and in the process i discovered well i think she would put together a kind of hodgepodge of career and she would also have to be inclined in that direction i don't think you'd become a perfume thief because it's particularly lucrative <laughs> or or um uh or that there's a particular avenue of, of secondary sales, although there, there were. I mean, you read in the newspapers of trucks being um, hijacked full of, of boxes of perfume and the purposes of kind of selling them in, in New York to like Canal Street and to the secondary market and um, as, you know, quote unquote, smuggled goods or fell off a truck or whatnot. <laughs> and so, um, that's the less glamorous aspect of perfume theory that I was searching for. And so, um, so I think that when I started to think about, well, perhaps rare scents would be something that she would steal for other people. So she would become a kind of thief for hire. And so people could be like, oh, you know, I read about this particular scent. I, I just want to smell it. I just want to experience it. I want to have it. And so she's able to facilitate that happening. In, uh, in going into the history and trying to find what rare scents would, um, would be something that she would be tasked with finding is really kind of where the novel started to stitch itself together too, in terms of thinking about where she would have to be at any given time and how she would gain the knowledge that she does and how she would find these, find these scents or even know about them. And then ultimately then that had to be part of her consciousness and then had to be part of the consciousness of the people that she interacted with. And so they do end up develop, the characters develop this, this, this dialogue about scent, this, um, this connection. And so in forming those connections, then the, the sensory elements of the olfactory components of it became dynamic. I mean, and came to life. There's this um, meta narrative that happens inside the book where Clementine as a perfume thief has books and a movie made about her as a perfume thief. And she doesn't particularly like the film very much, but she applauds the marketing use of um, scented cards that, that are, are to be sniffed at appropriate points in the movie. Was there any consideration? Do you have a consideration um, in terms of marketing the book to use sense and maybe to make it a bit more personal did you think about a particular scent for you and, and for your husband? Well, I, I did entertain the notion at one point of having little scratch and sniff cards that, would, that you'd be instructed to, 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 to tap into at some page. I just never got that together. I mean, it's, it's, but, um, right, or set the page or whatnot. Yeah. Um, and there actually was, I have a book on my shelf that actually did, was sold with like a, a I believe a kind of scented 
spot in the corner or some such. And, and so there were, there have been historically devices of incorporating scent into narrative. There was the odorama phase, which I think uh, may not have lasted more than one or two pictures, but the movies where you would, and, and John Waters' film Polyester came with a little scratch and sniff card that you're supposed to um, dip into at, at times when the movie announced it. So yeah, it's I, I have thought about it. And I might still do it if I uh, you know put one kind of runs out of time when they have the idea too late. But um, I, in terms of, I mean, the, for me, the novel is so full of scent and so full of varieties of scents that I drew from so many different places, not necessarily from the scent itself. So it's not like I went out into the world, but oh. I need to try to capture that scent. I learned early on in writing about scent that it's almost impossible to describe. You really can only just apply metaphor. And perfume, in a sense, is like an operable metaphor. You know, it's like it is it's all metaphor because it's 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 liquid, it's vapor, and yet it's suggestive of of other things and that it's not. And and that's why perfume writing is often so florid right i mean it's it's and 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 it's evoking emotions and it's trying to convey so i can't tell you exactly what this smells like but i can tell you what it will make you think of i can tell you the pictures that it will provoke and the memories that it might provoke and so i think that's kind of and if you if you try to describe the scent of a rose i mean you it only smells like a rose if you try to describe the honeysuckle well maybe it, it smells a little bit like another flower but but really, it's just you're left with words like sweet and sour to a certain degree, unless it smells like something else. And so, so I mean, I think that personally, I my nostalgic scent uh, that I t- tend to return to is black licorice. I mean, my um, grandmother made uh, and you know cookies with anise oil in uh, every holiday, and so, and I guess and black licorice is a, is a uh, the taste for it is genetic. So if you if you hate black licorice, you're genetically <laughs> predisposed to hating it, and vice versa. And so, for me, I just I just love it. And 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 there was when I worked in the drugstore, there were these anise squares that, from Russell Stover's that came wrapped up these little uh, red wrappers, and I loved those. And um, and one of my favorite perfumes is Penhaligon's. Blenheim bouquet, and I think it, it smells a little bit like a gin martini. There was another theme in the book that I just wanted to touch on quickly, which was romance and beauty and melancholy. There's a twinge of melancholy that I came away from uh, the Swan Gondola with, for example, because, you know, Ferret loses this love that he has, gains a daughter in a way, but loses a love. And similarly with the perfume thief, that there is this sense that Clementine has lost a daughter figure with the potential for another one that she didn't expect. But there's that sort of sadness. And I, I think that's an important part of any story's plot narrative, that there's some sense of push and pull of the emotions. But there's a line in uh, The Perfume Thief where Clementine says to Blue, every story of caution I ever tell him, he interprets as romance. And, and I'm wondering if you yourself are exploring this kind of line between sort of a sentimental romance or this this abandonment to this potential for devastation. Yeah, I mean, certainly melancholy plays a, a role in the stories I tell and in the characters and a lot and what outforms their sensibility and and just in life in general. And so, I, I think you know earlier you're asking about talent. I think we're probably also inclined 
toward particular emotional terrain that um, that is as novelists we try to tap into. I mean, I think probably some writers pursue every book with a different avenue that they want to explore and maybe some different aspect of their psyche or, or some, maybe they're more diverse in their sense of, <laughs> of the, the spectrum of feelings. Um, but, but I feel like I, the stories that suggest themselves to me are usually instances where I'm like, well, okay, so this thing happened. I wonder how that made those people feel and how did they recover from that? And how did, how do you, how do you explain that particular thing to yourself? And, um, and so those kinds of frictions that you read about in the newspaper or newspaper, or you, or sometimes I'll be watching a movie and I'll be disappointed with, with the conflict and how it went and how it was resolved and what I'm like, but wouldn't it have been more interesting <laughs> if this had happened instead of that? And, and so I think I'm always inclined toward thinking more about, well, the little devastations, I guess, that that people endure and um, that they can't, that doesn't, the things that don't destroy us and don't necessarily make us stronger to evoke the old proverb, but, <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, capture our um, sympathies to a certain degree or um, communicate something about our sense of self. You talk about these little devastations. There was one other little bit that I wanted to ask about in terms of a, a theme. This is uh, Clementine thinking about Oscar Voss, this um, you know Nazi official. She's thinking to herself, I want to believe Voss is capable of this flicker of compassion since he's telling me what I want to hear, but that will be the mystery that haunts me if I survive all this. How can he be so moved by beauty and by tales of love here in this room with me while his agencies consume the very soul of Paris? And it feels to me as if there's that much bigger question about the devastation of how is it that some people can appreciate what is wondrous and delightful about life while at the same time being evil or cruelly indifferent. And, and Voss is an emblem in some ways of that. And I, I don't think the book tries to answer that because it seems impossible to answer. But I, I wonder to the intent you sort of had that in your mind, you know, this, this lover of Paris who's also pillaging it at the same time. And I think that's part of the reason why we remain so fascinated with World War II and why there are so many books. And um, I mean, I was in the bookstore the other day and there was a whole section, not just of World War II novels, but World War II Paris novels. <laughs> I mean, the, I did when I started on this book, I had no idea exactly the extent of genre. But after reading those books and seeing the movies and going back and doing the research, now I completely get it. Now I'm always like, any new movie or new book and like salivating to get at it. And so, um, so like some evenings, like we'll sit down, my husband and I will sit down to watch a movie or something. And Ronnie's like, well, you can pick whatever you want, just not World War II. And so he's kind of fed up with, he's like, no Nazis. And so, but that's part of like the question of like, how could they be so evil and how could it be allowed to happen? I mean, all those questions, and it's something that the characters are contemplating too, just about their own lives. It's like, well, how, how do I go on with my own life when my neighbors are being arrested, when everything's being taken away, when I don't know what's happening to the Jewish people and I, and I know that they're in camps in Germany. I mean, it's, it's um, so some of that was trying to contemplate how they reconcile all of that. And then you realize, well, we do it all the time in our, in our own lives, you know, in terms of what's going on at the border or, or in terms of the, the rich versus the poor. And I mean, we, we, we somehow still can find beauty and love and compassion, uh, even as terribleness <laughs> arises around us at every corner. And so to a certain degree, it, it is that indulgence in beauty is a kind of response really to the horrors. And I, and you know, when you're reading about the war, the Nazis had families, they had wives, they had children, they had lives they loved very much. And in some instances, that was something that the resistance played toward as well. So you had soldiers who were stationed to keep a community captive and to be in service to the Nazi party and to be in service to Hitler. And they would recognize that, 
Well, but these, these soldiers, they want to go home. They want to have their own lives. They don't want to just be in service to Hitler. They want to be in service to their own happiness. So it wasn't a matter of like, here's the horrible things that are going on. It's more like, here's what you're stuck with <laughs> as a result of that. And so, so I, yeah, so I think that, um, I, well, actually, I just, just the other day I wrote down this, or I, I found this quote that I'd written down a while back. And this is from um, a novel by Stefan Zweig, the novel is 24 Hours in the Life of a Woman. And the quote is, most people have little imagination. If something doesn't affect them directly, does not drive a sharp wedge straight into their minds, it hardly excites them at all. But if an incident, however slight, takes place before their eyes, close enough for the senses to perceive it, it instantly rouses them to extremes of passion. They compensate for the infrequency of their sympathy, as it were, by exhibiting disproportionate and excessive vehemence. And I think that kind of sums it up to a certain degree right there. I mean, I think we see it happening, especially in the turmoil of the times we live through now, where there's these uh, vicious conversations that will take place on social media um, or in public settings even. But these are not people that are incapable of compassion. They're not responding with viciousness because they have ugly souls. I mean, it's it's because it's at some kind of intellectual remove and emotional remove. But when the things draw closer, um, I mean, there was a, I was reading about a, a doctor that was speaking to a woman who refused to get her vaccination. And she said, well, why are you, and the, and the woman said, well, I, I've, I've heard that it makes you magnetic. And so the doctors went and got a magnet and, and she's like, well, I'm, I'm vaccinated and put the magnet on and it didn't stick. And the woman was convinced. And so she's like, please vaccinate me or, or the people who, um, who don't get vaccinated. And then they end up in the hospital and very, very sick. And, um, and then ultimately reflect, oh, I feel so stupid. I should have got the vaccination. And so, so on the one hand, there are these concepts that just kind of exist as concepts that we can get so convinced of. And then there's the emotional response that is inexplicable to a certain degree, but has to be deeply personal. The other sense that roots itself through our brains in a slightly different way is music. And of course, that's a major theme in the novel as well. There is the song that Day sings, which is this famous song. It's, it's the one that's propelled her to her acclaim. Where Were You When, I think I think is the title of that. And it, it just made me think of... Um, you know, my childhood, I was born well after World War II, but, you know, my childhood was replete with Dame Vera Ling singing, yes. Dame Vera Ling singing you know, <laughs> you know, uh, the White Cliffs of Dover and, Absolutely. Um, and, and we'll meet again. Oh, we'll meet again. <gasps> yeah. So, and of course, that's what I was thinking of when I wrote Where Were You When? And, and ultimately, there's the uh, we'll meet again moment in the novel, too, later on, where there's I mean, it's that that there's that moment in the the song. You know, it's just, it's a kind of the, the the song is kind of plain to a certain degree, you know. But then the voices come out the court, you know, the the, the group, the community singing, the communal singing that, that comes into the song that just grabs me every time and just destroys me because it's not it's not a choir, it's not a choir that comes to sing. It's not backup singers. It's the sounds of people's voices in a pub. You know, they're raising their drinks. And they're, 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 the camaraderie that arises from that, that just makes me so sentimental. And, um, you know, with the, on the anniversary of the E-Day in, in England, they, uh, during the pandemic, they asked, they, they had a group sing-along to that song. And Vera Lynn was still alive and was there. I mean, she, she's, she was 100 or something, but she lived long enough for this moment. And, and people were going out in the street and, and the cameras were capturing them 
singing the song, um, singing along in, in various communities. And oh my God, just, just kills me. I just want to end on, on this question. And it's a little more frivolous. Uh, I hope, hope you don't mind that. I've read your novels and um, they're all great stories. And I, I can see all of them in cinematic terms, but I have to say I closed The Perfume Thief and sat back and, and just let it sink in a little bit. And I thought, this is crying out to be turned into a movie treatment. And I wonder if that's something that, that has crossed your mind. Yes, I would, I would welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, my editor, Margaret, and I will kind of uh, talk about how you know, we'll, we'll fantasize and we'll think, well, this is, this has to be prestige TV. This is going to be, to be like some, some uh, eight part series or something. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's when I'm writing it, I'm not really thinking of, I mean, I, I see it kind of as a movie in my head, but at the same time, you're in the characters' minds, especially when you're talking about the senses. I mean, that's something that can't quite be captured in the same way without your John Waters little scratch and sniff cards. But, um, but I think that there's enough kind of twists and turns that perhaps might uh, sustain a plot in a movie for a while. And also, uh, I, can, I was trying to think about who would play which characters, of course, playing that game, um, and also thinking... Well, what uh, exotic locations, other than Paris, of course, and, and New York, but what exotic locations would uh, you know a butterfly connoisseur go to? Costa Rica, <laughs> right, Costa Rica, yeah. right. <laughs> and Marrakesh, and Henry yeah, Dolly but... Zoo. <laughs> My guest today has been Timothy Schaffer, author of six novels, most recently, The Perfume Thief. Timothy, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Stuart. This is fun as usual. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.